Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Joe McGosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Bobby Panero on the pod. Bobby is the founder and CEO of Equals and previously was employee 20 and the first finance hire at Intercom. So in this episode, we're gonna cover Bobby's learnings on why freemium wasn't a fit, building a horizontal and differentiated product in a noisy market, founder-driven marketing, and learnings from seven years plus at, at Intercom. So welcome to the show, Bobby. Delighted to be here. Thanks, Tremick, for having me. So I think just wanna you know, dive right into Equals. What does Equals enable for customers? We started Equals about three years ago now, where we turned three in February. And Equals is a next generation spreadsheet. The whole idea, the whole thesis behind Equals is that the spreadsheet's actually correct. People want to work in a spreadsheet. There's a reason why we always end up back in a spreadsheet when we're doing analyses. It's this flexible canvas that allows us to build any analysis to work with data in the way that we want to, and we already know how to. And so the whole idea with Equals is, can we build a spreadsheet that's aligned to the ways in which people work today, that's connected to the places where our data lives, and then that's connected to the places where we as analysts share our work or our stakeholders are looking for their analysis. And so Equals is connected to every modern place where technology companies store their data. And it's also connected now to tools like Slack, email, Google Slides, where you can push analysis into. If I'm looking at Equals from an outside perspective, I kind of almost think of it like a better Tableau, a BI product almost. Is that the way that you would categorize it? How do you think about it? So a lot of analysts today are stuck in these kind of roundabout workflows. BI tools emerged because spreadsheets don't actually let us automate our work. We can't actually, in Excel and in Google Sheets, you can't connect to a data source. You can't have an auto-updating table. You can't have an auto-updating chart. And so BI tools kind of emerged from, hey, people are doing analysis in spreadsheets. Let's actually take this one job out of the spreadsheet and build a whole product out of it. And BI tools have turned out to be super useful, but... What if you could actually build a spreadsheet that does that? Because all these analysts today, the way they work is they prototype a dashboard in a spreadsheet. They'll prototype it in Excel or Sheets. They'll send it around an organization. They'll say, hey, does everybody agree that this is the right dashboard? These are the right metrics we should be looking at. And then they'll take that and they'll spend the next two weeks trying to get all that data to get piped into the data warehouse in the right way to then spin it up into Tableau to then share that dashboard with somebody that nobody ever goes and logs into Tableau to actually look at it. But then somebody finally does and something's broken in the Tableau dashboard. And then the analyst pulls all the data back down into a CSV, puts it into Excel, does the analysis to figure out why it's broken. And it's like, we just go round and about and around and about and around and about. And so the whole idea with equals is if I look five, 10 years into the future, I think there's actually an opportunity for us to displace BI tools for us to say, companies don't need BI tools because you can actually build out dashboards. You can fully automate all of your work from the comfort of a spreadsheet. A lot of companies have built products around the spreadsheet interface, right? And tons of those are focused on you know, product development. They're focused on sales. They're focused on finance, which you know very well, of course. You start off your career in finance, and yet you still chose to build a horizontal product. So describe why you made that decision. I never really even set out. You know, I think a lot of folks think that when you're kind of starting a company, you're like, oh, let me go look at all these problems and let me go look at different use cases and different personas and figure out, okay, let me solve a problem for this person and let me go and build a vertical thing or a horizontal thing. I never really approached it in that way. For me, it was, I'd been in seat at Intercom 
running finance and analytics. I lived all these problems as somebody who'd been an analyst. Problems that I lived were I wanted to do all these analyses. None of the data tools that existed in the world, BI tools, notebooks, vertical solutions for finance teams, for analytics teams, for sales ops, marketing ops. None of them let me do the things that I wanted to do. And so I just felt this overwhelming problem of, hey, I always end up back in this spreadsheet and none of these other vertical tools let me do the types of things that I want to do, automate my work, share it in a, in a more distributed or more automated way. And so I started from that. It was, how do I solve a problem for myself? And then I think that from there, people told me, they were like, hey, you're trying to build a horizontal tool. You're crazy. It'll never work. It's way harder than building a vertical, a specific verticalized solution. But then I started to kind of think, okay, actually the nature of the way analysis happens today in most companies is horizontal. It's no longer enough for a finance person to just be focused on what's coming out of NetSuite. It's not enough for a sales ops person to just be focused on what's coming out of Salesforce. They need to be focused on what's coming out of Salesforce, but also what's coming out of product analytics, but also what's coming out of Marketo or Intercom or HubSpot. And so in some ways, that's where these vertical tools kind of fall down. Analysis is horizontal. And the best companies, the companies that get the most insights, all those insights happen at the intersection of different functions. And so vertical tools just don't really work. That's why the spreadsheet is the tool that people end up back in. And I guess just the problem that we were trying to solve is just horizontal in nature. In terms of that spreadsheet and using that, I mean, obviously you said you personally came back to it each and every time, but was that a well thought out decision or did you just arrive at, hey, this is the UI that you know I know, everyone else knows. And so I think this will be really easy for people to get up to speed quickly from. That is the thesis behind Equals. And it's actually, in some ways, it's the most, when I say it to people, and I remember pitching it and going out to raise a seed and pitching it to people and being people being like, this is so obvious. I'd be like, <laughs> <too> yeah. Obvious. <laughs> but the thing that people don't get is that it's actually our most differentiated opinion in the world. There's a reason why Google Sheets works exactly like Excel does. And the whole point with Equals from the very, very get-go, from the first line of code that we wrote, our mantra was, the spreadsheet works exactly like Excel. We're not changing anything about it. You know, you said there's a lot of companies out there that have tried to build a spreadsheet-like interface. That's where a lot of companies go wrong. Oh, there's a slightly better way to do a pivot table, or there's a slightly better way to write a formula, or there's a slightly better way to do conditional formatting. Sure, there might be, but... I promise you, nobody wants to learn how to do it that way. And the benefit of equals is when you power it up, you can literally copy and paste a formula in from Excel and have it work in equals. And so the idea, again, is meet people the way they know how to work, but let's build something that's now significantly enhanced. You're not fighting distribution, right? And I, I think the, the funniest example to me is the QWERTY keyboard, which apparently is not the most optimized keyboard, was actually done to slow people down when we had typewriters. But then now, good luck getting me to use anything else besides the QWERTY keyboard. I'm going to use that thing because that's what yeah. I've used for years, right? <laughs> exactly. There's only those oddball engineers that have the random keyboard that they're like, okay, you know, uh, I'm optimizing everything. The rest of us, great. QWERTY. Don't fight distribution, I think, is a, is a great one. That's clearly what you guys are doing. This sort of horizontal product is something I'm just curious about because of the fact that you have so much surface area, 
that you could cover, right? So many different personas that could also use the product, right? So how do you guide users through to those optimal use cases for their context to help them understand the aha value, you know, when they're coming on to try it out? That's been a journey for us. It still is a journey in a lot of ways. Uh, we're still kind of working through that. The things I'd say are, I mean, when we started Equals, a lot of the way in which we made noise in the world was me just writing and talking to talking to myself, basically. So a lot of the ways in which we got our first users, our first customers was through the blog and just blog posts I wrote. And I treated them as kind of just letters to myself, letters to myself in the early days of Intercom. What are all the things I'd wish I'd known as a first finance hire, as a first operations person? What are analyses I'd wish I'd done? What are frameworks I wish I'd set up? What are mistakes I made that I wish I'd do differently if I were doing it again? And what that did for us was it kind of gave us a concentration of early users that were similar to me. And so in the very early days of Equals, we onboarded every single customer manually. And it was a very deliberate decision when we first launched that we're not going to let people into the product self-serve. We want to know who they are. We want to know what they're trying to do with Equals. We want to help them. The product's early. We want to build goodwill with them so that they're not, when they run into issues, we can solve them for them. And so that really just helped us understand, okay, and what we saw were a lot of people coming in that were similar to myself and my co-founder, Ben, who, you know, we built early intercom and a lot of the same metrics, a lot of the same reports. And so that helped us get them kind of stood up. And now as we've kind of opened up equals to the world, we're starting to bump into this issue of, okay, we have not just finance people and operators that want to sign up who are at early stage companies, but we're getting, you know, data teams at big companies. We're getting marketing ops and sales ops folks that are trying to build pipeline reports and different things. We're getting engineers who want to build tracking off of their Datadog instances or their render instances. And so things are starting to expand and we need to, we're going through a whole process of, okay, how do we build templates for folks? How do we make each of these integrations for different use cases more intuitive? How do we create mess onboarding sequences that are tailored to the role that you tell us you have when you sign up, it's just all a process. You know, you mentioned templates, Equals already has templates that are out there. But I mean, Notion, for example, has built out a huge template library that's been very helpful for them, right? There's that way that you can go in. There's another way that I'm making it up, but it's an AI chatbot that you have to give some context to. And then it's okay, we're going to now deliver this either template or contextual experience to you because of the information that we got. Like, are you going to try all of those? Do you have a hypothesis on, hey, here's probably what makes more sense for users? How do you think about that? I mean, templates is definitely something that we're continuing to invest in. I actually want us to move faster on that. And so I think it's just a massive opportunity that we haven't yet fully taken advantage of. And then I actually think a lot of it is going back to the things that got us really successful in the very early days of Equals, which is just talking to people and helping onboard them and spending time with them and saying, okay, let's pick five people who are coming in from a marketing ops use case and just really try to understand what their goals are, what they're trying to do, what they're trying to build, and even help them build it. Yeah, you could kind of imagine building a little AI bot that tries to go, but we learned so much in the early days of Equals by just onboarding those folks and talking to them and building things for them. I was building models for people. You want to track ARR off of your chart mogul data? Sure, let's build it. You just learn so much by doing that. And so we need to go persona by persona over time and do the hard work, the work of actually talking to them, doing it for them, meeting with them, understanding if it's valuable, if it's not, why not? That's really how you crack it, I think. On that bespoke onboarding, 
What made it work? You had this intense friction, right? I, I think we've experienced it with Superhuman, where it was just like, there was email was a pain point. And so then everyone was like, yes, we want email to be better. And so it didn't matter if you put up gates in front of them or whatever, they, they needed to, to improve that experience. Was that similar to you of like, you just product market fit just kind of happened because of the fact that people just had this pain point around it. And so you were able to do this bespoke onboarding, put up this friction and still it was, it was growing. Yeah. I mean, I think in the beginning we were able to do that because we'd struck a nerve with folks. We'd launched something that, you know, when we put out our first demo video of equals people, the reactions that we got from people were, holy shit, somebody's finally done it. People have talked about this for so long. Like I said, when we would pitch it, people would be like, yeah, that's obvious. Why does that not exist? It doesn't <laughs> exist because it's really hard to build, really hard to build. And so when we launched and we finally showed what we'd built, people were like, holy shit, that's amazing. It's, I can't believe this exists. Finally, I've been looking for something like this for a long time. And that came from you know me and my co-founder having lived this problem and knowing that this would resonate with folks. And so that got us through that kind of initial point of, hey, we have something that people want and we can show it to you. And that's enough incentive for you to jump on a call with us and get through the friction of kind of onboarding and paying for it before you'd even used it. That was a requirement that we, we also had. But don't get me wrong, throughout that whole process, there were people banging on the door on email, in intercom messages, on Twitter. Why can't we use this? I know how to use this. Just let me in. I want to use this. Why is this thing not free? Blah, 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 all those things. And that's what led to the whole freemium thing, which I'm sure we'll get into. Oh my God, everybody. We want to get in. We want to get in. Let us in. Advisors, you guys should have a free tier. You should let people in. This is, oh my gosh, you should totally do that. And so we did and we tried it. How much of this was driven by the market saying this is what we wanted versus you doing a careful analysis of, like, okay, this is the optimal thing? It's a combination. I mean, it was definitely in part a bunch of people saying it's hard to look at those intercom messages and the emails from users and say, hey, can we just get in? I just want to use it. Oh, equals looks awesome. Please, can I just try this for free? And be like, oh, shoot. No. We talked about it as a team. Think about the opportunity we're missing here. Oh, my God. All these people just want to try it. So that was part of it. And then the other part of it was what we're building is the next Excel, like Excel, then Sheets, then Equals. And if you fast forward 10 years from now, how do you maximize the possibility that millions, if not billions of people are using Equals? And so you can kind of deduce getting into a free tier from that. And then the last thing is you look at, you know, it's hard not to look at companies you admire and companies like Notion and Figma, and Canva, and Loom, and look at them and look at their massive distribution, massive user base, and say, hey, Equals could be like that. And so all those things pointed us to free, and Equals is an ambitious project. I'm a very ambitious person. I want to build as big a company as I possibly can. And so it was an experiment that I think we had to try to see if we could do it. Getting into the post, and, and we'll link to that in the show notes, but one of the things you mentioned is that kind of freemium hit retention, not only retention, but also the free to paid conversion, I think got hit the most. But at the same time, one question I have before that is, did freemium still help drive top of funnel at least? Like, was top of funnel growing faster than before? Or did that also get hit as well? Top of funnel didn't really move. I mean, it depends on how you define top of funnel. It didn't really move the needle in terms of how many people were coming to equals. Wow. What it did move was the number of people that made it further into the product. So obviously we had more people that had made it into the spreadsheet into doing some action in the spreadsheet, but a lot less people actually connected to a data source, 
which is the big aha moment for equals. Why do you think that retention and conversion of paid wasn't happening? Was it lack of enablement? Was it too many users coming in the funnel? So you guys weren't able to tackle all of them? How do you kind of think about it? So we tried different experiments to get people to connect different things at different points. And we also tried increasing moving around. We tried different types of integrations. We tried getting rid of the integration requirement altogether to see if we could get way more people in and with the hope of it, the denominator increasing, then therefore the numerator should at least an absolute increase of people that connect to data source. The biggest takeaway I have from it all, and this also connects back to my intercom days, is the whole point of onboarding and the point of getting people this carrot of giving people the product, letting people into it. It's a really valuable asset that you have in onboarding. And the point of onboarding is getting people to a place where they're set up, where they actually are going to get some value from the product and you're naturally going to lose people along the way. And so hitting people with the hard things up front really lets you keep that motivation, that inertia. Okay, you're going to get to that magic moment. You're going to get to the product, but asking them to put a credit card in, asking them to start a trial, a time-based trial that creates urgency for them to actually do things, to feel like they have skin in the game, to feel like they're committed, making them do the hard thing, connect a data source, all of those things, if they can overcome that, that's their motivation. Their goal is to get to the product and you can use that as leverage, I guess, to get to it. And that by far has led to the most engaged users, the best revenue growth, an absolute increase in the number of people that use equals. It's human nature. I want this thing. And all the people that are like, get me in, get me in, get me in. I want this for free. They didn't actually have a problem to solve or they didn't really have the motivation to get to the end state. And so we were just spinning our wheels and costing ourselves the people that were motivated, that would have had that motivation, that would have been excited to do all those hard things. Would you almost describe it as the people who are doing the free trials are raising their hands saying, hey, we have high intent to become a paid user. And so then that means that you can, frankly, invest behind them a lot more confidently because of the fact that at least they've raised their hand that this is the case versus if it's true freemium, you don't necessarily have that same intent. Yeah, it's also even at a higher level than that. It forces that user to decide whether or not they have the intent and the motivation. Mm -hmm. It's a psychological thing. Okay, am I gonna commit to this? Yes, I am. I'm gonna put my credit card in and I'm gonna go through once I've done that, oh, well, and it's a very subtle thing, but it's like, okay, well, I've done that. So now I'm going to do the next thing. And now I'm going to do the next thing. And, oh, I ran into this bug, but I've already connected my data source. I'm going to work through this. It just gives them a whole lot more motivation and inertia to get really stuck in. And then on our side, yeah, for sure. It definitely gives us a, a lot more focus. We know who to talk to. We know which customers to spend time with. We know who to build for. It just really kind of clarifies a lot. And that's to your point on the horizontal thing, that's insanely valuable for us, knowing who to spend time on and knowing who to build for. Clearly, you guys are data-driven org. I mean, one, I'm sure you're, you're dogfooding equals, uh, so that helps. Uh, but also, you know, you're, you're obviously looking at all these metrics. And so freemium isn't working out. Six months later, you make this change. You announced it to the whole world. You told your investors. You changed all the stuff on the website, all this sort of stuff. And now you're telling the team, hey, no, actually... We're going to revert all that. And so just like talk through how did that decision making work? How did you get the 
team on board? How do you arrive at like, six months is the right time versus nine months versus 12 months? Because you can always say, hey, we could try out more things. What it all went behind that? Not easy, for sure. And scary. And you're banging your head on the wall for six months. And you're like, what's going on? And telling the team was, I mean, that that I don't think is hard. I think you just are real. Hey, look, we tried this thing. It didn't work. It was a hypothesis that we had. We were excited about it going into it. But here's what we learned. And here's why it's not working. And here's what we're going to do differently as a result of that. I had a lot of conviction going into it. And it was wrong. And that's okay. We're going to make big bets as a company. And we're going to, we have to be able to do those things and then change direction. But just being real and transparent and showing what worked and what didn't work, that's the only way in my experience. And then, you know, in some ways, yeah, we are very data-driven. And so we were every week, you know, every day, every week, tracking how many people are active in the product, what's going on in onboarding, how many people are getting a data source connected, what's their week one retention, week two, week three, week four, all that tracking it. But I think there came a point where it was a combination of, look, as a startup, yeah, you could do, we could have run it for three more months, six more months, but we're a startup and we have a finite runway. We've got metrics that we have to go hit to raise future capital. And I tend to to put ourselves in really strong positions when we go out to market to raise. And so I was, we'd intentionally gone into this with a good amount of buffer, but I didn't, I was looking at the future and saying, okay, I don't think that we're going to be in as strong a position as I want to be if we don't change direction now. And so as much as you do want to give it kind of time and see things through, you also have to make decisions quickly as a startup and change directions and be willing to be wrong and act quickly. One thing I'm curious about with the free trial that you guys have, you know, there's this concept of a reverse free trial, which is like some people have a basic tier and a pro tier and so on and so forth. But I imagine actually for your product, you almost want people to experience the pro stuff if there ever was that sort of characterization. You want them to experience it because you don't want to close off the Snowflake connector because that's how they could get a lot of value from it. So do you almost not have this concept of this reverse free trial because of the fact that you want them to explore the product no matter what when you give them a free trial? It's a good point. And that's something we should probably experiment with. But no, right now we actually just make you pick what you want in your trial. And then we give you access to the trial that you've selected. And part of that is because we do have, we have both a self-serve and a sales motion. And so our best plan is we don't open that up to the world. We require you to talk to somebody to get to that. And that's intentional. It helps us have a conversation with people. It helps us get the people that should be in that funnel in that funnel. But, you know, we're still so early in this journey. We've, we've reverted from free three, almost three and a half months ago now. And it's been super early. Yeah. (laughs) A smashing success, but still a lot to experiment with. I just want to reiterate, thank you for publishing the post. I feel so many founders are struggling with this and everyone is obviously, like you said, looking at Notion and so on and so forth and saying, oh, freemium, you know, this is the way to do it. And you have a horizontal product to go do these things. And this is just very helpful for founders to read through and be like, ah, this is what I was feeling about the product, that something was off, that it wasn't working. And now I can put words to it. So, yeah, I appreciate that. And it's been wild to, since publishing that post, how many people have reached out both publicly and privately being like, oh my gosh, I had the exact same experience. We tried free horrible, then we turned it off and it was like, we're back on track. And people don't share those stories, but it's been fun to see or interesting to see how many folks that's just resonated with and how many shared experiences people have had. When you think about, let's just say intercom versus equals, 
and how freemium worked for one really well and didn't work for the other as well. Have you had any insights or thoughts as to why that's the case for equals versus versus not for say intercom? We always required a credit card trial up front. I think actually intercom and equals are quite similar in that way. So I think there's two ingredients that you have to have to really make PLG work. And even with these two ingredients, it doesn't necessarily, it's not, doesn't mean it's going to work. You still have to focus a lot on product activation. You have to get really good at onboarding folks. And then you have to have the volume too, to be able to convert people because your funnel gets longer when you're free. But the two ingredients in my view are you have to have a massive potential user base. And so those types of things tend to work really well for prosumer type tools. That's why Notion, Figma, Canva, Loom, almost anyone in a company can use those tools. And so the, just the addressable market is absolutely, absolutely massive. I think in some ways we had that with equals and also with intercom. I think with equals, one kind of maybe oversight there, one way in which it's a little bit more narrow is you actually, it's still a power tool. You're connecting to a data source. And so there's some, you know, it's not all of the use cases of an Excel and Sheets. So one is having a huge, huge, huge potential user base. And then the second is just how quick is your time to value? How fast can you get to something that is actually valuable in the tool? And again, Notion, Figma, Loom. Loom is you record your first Loom in right, yeah. a minute and you're done and you've got something that you can send out and it's amazing. Cool. Great. With equals, you got to connect to data source. You got to figure out how to query it. Once you query it, then you got to build a little analysis and okay, you know, maybe an hour or two, if you've really focused, you're like, this is awesome. And so there's just more inertia to get set up, more hurdles to get there. Same with intercom. It was just needed to, for it to be really, really valuable. You needed to install a snippet of JavaScript onto your website. And so if you were a marketer, a support person, a salesperson, who were most of the people that we were selling intercom to, you needed to ping somebody else. You need to have them install it. So it took some time. And so again, asking people to kind of put that foot in, right? Have a little bit of skin in the game really help them, in my opinion, I think really helps kind of get them to a place where they're going to invest the time they need to, to make it valuable. Those are the two things I think work for PLG or freemium PLG. I'm making the same mistake that I don't like other people making. PLG is not freemium. Those two things are conflated all the time and they're not the same, but those are the two ingredients I think that really work for freemium. Because a lot of people have this product activation thing where somebody to get value needs to connect to, let's say Salesforce. You need to connect to Salesforce, you get that data in, boom, now you can do lead scoring, you could do reverse ETL, you can do all sorts of stuff on it. But that problem is the user's like, well, shit, should I connect to Salesforce? Like, I don't know what it'll do. What if it screws something up? Things like that. Is that, in your mind, the biggest hurdle to jump over for equals adoption? I think for equals, yeah. For equals, it was us getting the data source connection. And I think part of that is also, I wouldn't make this a blanket statement every product that requires a data source integration or data, some connection to another tool automatically cannot be free because that's not true. There's so many other dimensions. Is the person who's signing up for that thing, do they have the credentials? Do they have the authority? Do they have the ability to do it? How quickly can they get to something of value once they have connected that thing? It's totally possible that free could work when there is a connection. But for us, sometimes it was it was an analyst that signed up on the team and they couldn't connect to the Salesforce instance, or it was a finance person and they didn't have their credentials to connect to the Postgres database. So they had to then ping an engineer and all of a sudden, okay, it just adds more hurdles and more time to where, how you get to value. But it's certainly the case that if you're working with the sales ops manager 
and you're asking them to connect Salesforce, it's like two clicks and all of a sudden they have something of value. Cool. Free might work for you. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. You leverage the crap out of LinkedIn. You're very good at it. You know, it's from blog posts, product demos, advice. You're just, you're posting it and you're, you're at the top of various people's news feeds. Even for me, like I wasn't even connected to you and, and you were still top, top of my news feed. So this is clearly a thought out approach. So talk about how you do it effectively. I think a lot of what I'm trying to do with LinkedIn is just tell the world our story, tell the world equals the story, help people. And I think as long as I come across with that kind of intent, that's the type of content that I think really resonates with folks, particularly it's like the freemium thing. It's sharing our story, sharing our learnings, trying to be of of service and help to other folks. And if we can do that, I think that, like you said, it's it's not only staying top of mind with people, but I think a lot of folks, especially in the early days, they just buy, yes, your product, you need to solve real problems for people, but they're also resonating with who you are and what you stand for as a company. And I think for me, LinkedIn, but also our blogging, all of that was just trying to get in front of people in a way that's helpful. And that's it. How do we share stories that resonate with people, be seen as people that know what they're doing, be seen as a company and as founders that other people want to work with. And if we can do that, then, you know, yeah, we can then later on tell them the nuts and bolts of equals and tell them, you know, all the details of how it works and hopefully we can get them as customers. But Really, it's just about being as helpful as we can for other folks. And I'll tell you, it's been a journey. It's scary. A lot of founders, in the beginning, it's scary putting yourself out there. It's hard to write a LinkedIn post or write a blog post. And I remember publishing the first blog post and I was like, oh my gosh, people are going to think this is so dumb. (laughs) And you just have to keep doing it. And it gets less scary and scary over time. And you also learn. You just see what people want, what resonates, what doesn't resonate, and you keep doing it. That original product demo, I think, drove a lot of leads or interest or something like that is what you said. I've seen you do product launches on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Is that video concept, like that demo concept still core to what you guys are doing? Are you still seeing that corresponding uplift from those things? Or was it really the first one that was the main driver? Oh, we do demos all the time to the point where sometimes I'm like, are we doing too many demos? <laughs> uh, but no, for our, we just did a, a massive dashboards launch. And one of the main assets of it was a demo video that I actually spun up the day of because I was like, we need to do something to juice this launch. And so I just recorded a little demo of me building a dashboard and it took off and it was really cool to see. But I think that the ethos behind all of that is, and so demos work well for us, but the ethos behind it is, and this is something Ben, my co-founder, and I talked a lot about from the very, very early days of Equals, is I actually just think most B2B SaaS marketing is really boring. And (laughs) most people do not show the product. My reaction to a SaaS company that's marketing to me, and I can't see, if I go to your marketing site, if I am looking at your social post and I can't see the product, I'm like, the product's shit. Sorry. (laughs) Like, that's my instinct. And It doesn't mean that's true, but I think that there's a reason why you're not showing me the product. And so show me the product. We took a lot of this from the intercom days, and it's why we invest so heavily in design and making equals look and feel amazing is because we want to show the product. We want to put it front and center. We want people to look at it. And I think this is why we get the reactions is people see it and they're like, wow, I get it. That looks amazing. That's incredible. You sweated the details. And... 
when you do that, you can put the product front and center and it becomes real for people in a way that's not like the marketing speak of like, we're going to build you a single source of truth or save 10 hours building your analyses. I could run campaigns like that. And again, if I got that, I'd hate it. I'd hate it. Right. And so for us, it's been, you'll see from the very, very, very early days of equals, it's like, show the product, show the product everywhere on our site, on our blog, on our demos, everything is product first, put the product out there. It's a spreadsheet. People don't know what to do with it. Yeah. I mean, that embodies PLG basically as much as you can ask for, right? Whether freemium or whatever you want to call it, that is PLG. Having been early at Intercom and, and seen that journey, I want to ask you specifically on the go-to-market because I could ask you your general learnings and, and stuff like that. Maybe there's some interesting stuff that you've learned generally as well, but specific to GTM, what key tactics or tips did you pick up from Intercom that you know either you have applied or, or just were key things that, that have lodged in your mind? Our go-to-market resembles almost identically intercoms. We learned it from Dez, from Owen, from our head of marketing at Equals was the head of marketing for, for intercoms. So okay. we, we brought all that DNA over. Matt is incredible. He's just one of the best product marketers and best marketers on the planet. So we're very, very, very fortunate to have him. I think the ethos, I mean, part of it is what I just said. It's show the product, show the product, show the product. What worked really well at intercom in the early days was content. And mm. how did we get connected at content? right? It's tell our stories, have opinions about the world. We're very fortunate. Myself, my co-founder, Matt, my head of finance, our head of engineering, all early intercom, we have all sorts of crazy war stories and things and, and opinions and things that we can share with the world from the, that experience. And so a lot of it is just sharing the lessons that we've learned and hoping that it's helpful for people and that content really resonates. And Matt said something to me the other day, that really resonated. He was like, all of marketing is just content. Are you creating something that other people want to consume and that piques people's interest and is gripping their attention? And so a lot of what we do is just, how do we grip your attention by showing you the product? How do we grip your attention by doing something that's different, playful colors? And then how do we tell you interesting things? How do we share our opinions with you so that we can either help you or rile you up? And that's it. And then we can talk about positioning and jobs to be done and all that stuff. We learned about, you know, I learned a lot about that at Intercom, Matt and Ben did as well. And so that's informed a lot of how we also take equals to market. Was there a specific job to be done framework or something that you follow then? Or, or I'm curious to pull on that thread a little bit. Yeah. Jobs to be done was probably one of the biggest unlocks that we had at Intercom in the early days. I remember, you know, we used to sell Intercom. Intercom was just the easiest way to talk to your customers. That was the original positioning. And it was you get a chat messenger and you get to see your customer base live in intercom and we went through this whole exercise one of the biggest unlocks we had at intercom was we went through this whole job so we done exercise and we actually broke the product up into so it was intercom this place you could talk with your customers and then we ended up breaking the product up into three jobs it was engage support and acquire and so engage was how do you message your customers proactively support is how do you support your customers acquire is putting the messenger on the front page and helping you land more customers. And that was what we learned. Those were the three jobs that people would sign up for intercom to do. And that blew up the business. I mean, we packaged the product in that way. We marketed the product in that way. We sold the product in that way. And all of a sudden it was revenue took off. Users adoption took off. People's understanding of the product took off. It also shaped how we built things in the future. And so a lot of what we're doing now at equals is kind of similar in that way. We're not as far down the journey, but we really think about the equals jobs in similar three categories as a query or connect to different data sources and how do you 
bring data in. So a lot of marketing and product improvements that we can do there. There's analyze, which is what do you do once you're in the spreadsheet and work with the data? And then there's report and how do you push data out to your stakeholders? And so it's kind of helped us think about how we speak about equals to the world. And that's really started to resonate. And then it also helps us understand and shape how we build and where we focus and which areas of the product are more robust and less robust. That's also interesting because even from a templates perspective, as you start to learn more about those personas, you can start to be like, well, okay, this persona probably more likely can figure stuff out on the query side and the analyze side. But, you know, reporting, if we can give them beautiful looking graphs and things like that, that they could readily package up, that would be pretty good. You know, so I, I think that's a really cool way of segmenting the product and being able to focus on that. Do you have any fun anecdotes or do things that don't scale moments that just have stuck with you over the years where you're just like, oh man, I can't believe that that worked or I can't believe that happens, but that was really cool. Anything like that? The one that's coming to mind for me is that the early intercom, and this is actually one of the origin stories or one of the theses behind equals was I remember this is one of the very first times I dreamed about building equals was coming out of this. And the story here was I wanted some very, very basic reporting out of intercom on our business. And again, this is a really fundamental stuff. I want to know every day how many people came to our marketing site, how many people entered their email address, how many people started a trial, how many people converted off a trial, how much revenue we brought in, how much churned, et cetera. Just like really, really simple stuff. And I want to see it every single day. And I want to then be able to send it to everybody in the company every single day. And this is not, I think a lot of folks join companies and they're especially first analysts and they're like, I got to build some crazy complex model. I got to predict the future. I got to build some predictive thing that, no, what you got to do is you got to build the really, really, really simple stuff. For me to build that simple report that it was called the daily pulse, we would send it out to people via email. It would land in their inbox at 5 PM every day. And it fundamentally changed the company. Just sending an email like that to everybody in the company every single day meant Everybody was aware of what happened that day. We launched a product. We saw a massive number of signups. Somebody shipped something in onboarding that broke a flow. Wow, what happened to signups? Every day, somebody was sending an email. What happened? What happened? What happened? And guess what? Instead of fixing it a week later, we fixed it that day. And then we knew the things that didn't work and we knew the things that did work much faster. And so that's the end result. But to get there was this horrendous <laughs> nightmare. A lot of data sources. <laughs> yeah. I half knew Python, but I was teaching myself Python as I'm writing this thing. I had to buy a Mac mini that sat under my computer perpetually on. I had to learn how to spin up a server. I had to learn how to put something on a cron job. I had a multi-thousand line Python script that some engineers helped me get data from our Postgres database that then we piped into another one that was a replica because the first time I pulled something out of our original Postgres database, it took down the app because it was a production database. It's <laughs> nightmare. I mean, it took me two weeks, three weeks to build this thing, this really simple thing, but it changed the company. And it was one of these things that in hindsight, you're like, wow, that was a mess, but really worth all the time that we spent on it. And then ultimately was one of the things that was, oh shoot, this would actually, if I could have done that in Excel, I could have done it in an afternoon. That's why equals exist now. There's an alternate path where you would have been a dev tools founder, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just kept going down the route. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is uh, that is amazing. Uh, the last question I have for you is just from a cultural standpoint, 
you're doing these things, show the product, write about the stuff that we're doing or we're doing wrong and, and correcting and stuff like that, right? Let's just transparent, show the world sort of ethos to it. How do you culturally embed that into the organization, make sure everyone's kind of aligned to that and excited about doing that and embodies that? Live that myself is really the best answer I can give you. If I'm that way and if I put myself out there and when we went through this change of going to freemium and then away from freemium and admitting that the decision wasn't the right decision and being transparent and real and vulnerable with that and then just living it myself and putting it out there and you know every post that we write that is a sharing of our lessons or a celebration of our successes or in some way shape or form kind of coming from that place of let's be real be open be transparent be intentional about what we do i think if I can do that, if my co-founder can do that, then I think that just kind of trickles through the rest of the organization. And that's what I value in people, the types of people that we end up hiring or folks that embody that in some way, shape or form, who can, in our interview process, talk about mistakes they've made, who can reflect on experiences they've had, both good and bad, who want to learn from the, the hard things that have happened in their career and who do learn from them and share those things that, that to me is a telltale sign of somebody who wants to grow, somebody who has that kind of right, right mindset. And so it starts with me and my co-founder, but then it, it is just an intrinsic thing that we look for in people. That's a great piece of advice for those trying to embody that in their own orgs. But Bobby, thanks for the time. Really appreciate all the insights and you sharing everything. Is there anything you'd like to highlight for the audience regarding sequels that's coming up or that has been released recently? We launched dashboards. So that was the biggest launch that we had in quite some time. We launched it about a week ago. Dashboards is basically the kind of almost a full circle moment for equals. Now you can not just query and analyze from the comfort of a spreadsheet, but you can also distribute analyses out into from a BI grade doc type dashboard that lives within your spreadsheet. You can push it out into different places like Slack and email and Google slides. Check it out. It's equals.com forward slash dashboards. If you want to learn more, it's it's awesome. We'll link to your demo in the show notes. So, so Amazing. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, continue with the ethos of demos. But uh, Bobby, really appreciate it. And thanks for sharing the stories. Looking forward to reading the next content that comes out from you and the team as, uh, as you continue to experiment and learn and grow the business. So congrats on everything. And thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Shamik. This was fun. 